We're going to sing a new song together this morning. It's called How Great, and it's a chance for us to sing and meditate on God's greatness, and I hope that it's an encouragement to you. Even if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to sing along with us as soon as you can pick it up.
ask that you remain, remain standing as we read our passage this morning. If you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 10, and we will read the inspired, infallible Word of God this morning. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And you may be seated. This morning as we continue in our worship service, we want to encourage you and remind you that there are opportunities to give as a part of your worship and to give regularly and on a sacrificial basis. You can give online or in person. There's a box here at the back of the worship center or you can mail checks in. And we also want to remember this morning as we continue the McFarland family. They are in Tijuana, Mexico this weekend with Homes of Hope. And uh, lastly, we also want to remember this morning um, our church leadership last week, several deacons were affirmed to continue in their roles, and so this morning we want to pray for them and for the leaders of grace. And so, would you pray with me? Lord, we come this morning recognizing that you are great. You are our great God and Savior, and God, we are not, and so often we lose sight of that reality, and God, we thank you that we come this morning and we can reorient our vision, we can reorient our hearts to see you for who you are and to see ourselves for who we are. Apart from you, God, we are a rebellious people. We uh, suppress the truth. God, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We make ourselves out to be kings God, we want to sit on the throne of our lives, and so as such we store up wrath for ourselves rightly and justly that is owed to us because we're in rebellion against the one who is the one true king. God, too often we ignore and look past your kindness and patience and forbearance that is to lead us to repentance. And so, God, we are rightfully deserving of any and all punishment that is due to us. But you, out of your great mercy and love toward us, 
have bought and purchased a people who would worship and praise Jesus and be saved from their sins and be able to stand before you holy and blameless and with great joy, knowing the forgiveness of our trespasses and knowing that it is all according to the riches of your grace because of that which was done at the cross. And so, God, we come this morning and those who know you and have been redeemed by the cross of Jesus, we praise you and we praise Jesus because of what was done there. God, you have made a way where there was no way, and so we worship and praise the greatness of our Savior, knowing that though our sin is great, he is greater, and we put all of our hope and trust in him. God, thank you for the McFarlands who are willing to be used by you to serve and to point to you, even in the the ministry to those in Mexico through Homes for Hope. Would you empower and encourage and strengthen them, keep them safe, let them be lights for you. Thank you for the leadership you have given to Grace, those who selflessly serve. Thank you for our deacons who serve so often behind the scenes and without recognition, but in such important ways to help facilitate and move the ministry here at Grace. We pray that you would continue to uplift them and give them wisdom and guidance, keeping them holy and blameless before you. God, we thank you for this church and for this place where we can gather to praise the name of Jesus, and would you use This morning's time to lift his name above all else. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, that is our desire this morning. We pray that as we open your word together now, you would show us our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see his glory. Would your spirit be at work among us? Thank you that your word accomplishes its purpose and works to change us into the likeness of Christ. We pray that you would uh, direct us in that way this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and today and next Sunday we meet two beautiful related doctrines of God's glorious grace, so stunning that once you see them, you can't unsee them. Election and predestination, different facets of the same salvation diamond, and they're seen throughout Scripture uh, for God's glory and our joy. And it seems that everyone has an opinion when it comes to election and predestination. Some come to it with a solid grasp of the word. Some come with maybe a shaky understanding. And some just go by pure guesswork. And they have no idea. If you have a solid grasp of it, I pray that you would humbly live it. If you have a shaky understanding, I Pray that you would come to know and love it, and if you're going by pure guesswork, you need to hear and cling to the Word of God over your own heart and mind. But God has something to say about it, and He means what He says, and it's something that God wants every believer to know what they have and not miss the blessings of the Spirit that God intends believers to enjoy. I have got a pair of shorts at home that I keep passing up, uh, open up the drawer. I, you probably have something like this where you, you open up the drawer and you're like, mm, I don't want to wear that. Well, there's one pair of shorts that for the last probably three months, I've just passed up. And so this week, I thought, you know, I'm going to give them a chance. <laughs> My only one's left. i got to use them. And uh, I put them on, and I was walking around, and I felt something in the front left pocket. Instantly, I knew there was something that had gone through the wash, it was kind of a rolled up bundle of paper. So I put my hand in the pocket and took it out and turns out it was, it was really good paper. <laughs> it was $112 that had gone through the laundry and uh, turns out that there's a $5 bill on the outside but there was a $100 bill in the middle and you couldn't get to the 100 until you unrolled the bundle. Understanding the doctrines of grace better can be like finding $112 in your pocket. And yet far, far more. Far, far more. Now, I'm not sure what you think you need today, and all I can tell you is this is it. Verse 3 began, we looked at it last week, blessed be God, the one who is worthy of blessing, who has blessed us, the believers, endowed believers, graced believers, with every spiritual blessing spiritual, of the Spirit. And it's in the heavenly places. The new heaven and earth brought about in Christ. And the first blessing listed is that we were chosen by God. Chosen in Christ. Ephesians 1.4, every believer was chosen by God. This would have been a great comfort for these new believers in Ephesus. They had coming out of a death grip of paganism and idolatry and 
deception and they're still in a culture that's just immediately now at odds with their confession of Christ as Lord. Some of you probably experienced that when you came to faith in Christ. You lost some friends. Maybe met antagonism. But undeterred, the church taught the word of God and they were teaching it to Jews with their Old Testament scriptures and Gentiles with a hunger to know and they needed these words of assurance. They needed to hear what God had done. They received it audibly. Somebody would have been writing it down. They would have poured over it over and over again, even committing it to memory. They knew the meaning in context, and our job is to discern the same truth. I want to show you what the Bible says about election and something that every believer needs to believe and love and rejoice in, to see what the scriptures say. The best way to combat false teaching and weird ideas, and uh, there's a lot of false teaching when it comes to election and predestination. So Paul, in the fourth verse of a six-chapter letter, dives right in with it, right at the beginning. Gives you what you need to know, without a doubt, with assurance, that believers have been chosen by God, and why it matters. I'm going to break up the outline this way. Three questions. Who determined it? When did it happen? And what was its purpose? And the reason why is because this, these are the questions that this verse answers. Who determined it? When did it happen? And what was its purpose? So first, who determined our being in Christ? Who was the determiner? It was solely, as we see in this verse, solely God's sovereign choice. We did not choose him or find him or want him. It says that just as he chose us in him. Now, verses 3 to 14, these beautiful uh, verses that just rehearse the, the glories of God's grace in Christ, it, it tells us that God blesses believers through the three persons of the Trinity. You've got the Father's redemption, the election, the Son paying for our redemption, and the Holy Spirit sealing it, guaranteeing it. And it's just like God created the world. He decided to do this all on his own in the secret council of the Trinity with no consultation from anyone else but himself. It's like in Genesis when he says, let us make man in our image. To choose means to pick out or single out or select in those days, it would have been used for choosing uh, soldiers or ruler or, or even someone to row a boat like you. You're, you're strong. You're rowing the boat. It means to select and pick out. For us, it would be like how we selectively pick out the gray hairs once we start getting older. You know. Chose is the idea of declaring a choice layered with the idea of accepting some and rejecting others, and layered with the idea of then taking that choice and possessing it. He has chosen us. He chose us. Now, by the way, in verses 3 to 14, this is the only verse that isn't dependent on something else. This is the only verse that's, the, the only verb that is not subordinate to something else in the passage. Because it's the biggest concept. It starts it all off. It's, it's the first link in the golden chain of redemption. And it happened before any of us were ever around. It, he chose us, the whole invisible body of Christ. 
That's why we praise him, because he chose us. It's unconditional. It wasn't based on anything about us that was special or noteworthy. It was based on God's decree, on God's decision. It's immutable. It can't be revoked. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And you read about it in Romans 8, 28 to 30. You read about it in Colossians 1. You read about it here in Ephesians 1. Lewis Burkhoff in his systematic theology said election is, quite simply, God's eternal purpose to save some of the human race in and by Jesus Christ. It's the eternal act of God whereby in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chose a certain number of people to be recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. Now what you need to know is how, how choose and choice and, and this idea is used in the Bible, where it's found. And, and what you'll find is, because you might go, wow, why all the talk about election and predestination? Well, because it's in the Bible a lot. In, in the Hebrew scriptures, you look, start, start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament, first it's in Hebrew, quickly gets translated into Greek, the Septuagint. It uses the same word here, eklektos, 139 times. It's 125 times in the New Testament. And what is it referring to in the Old Testament? It's referring to God's carefully conceived choices when he selected a king, when he chose a people, when he chose a place for his name to dwell, when he chose the priesthood. And every time it's used in the Old Testament, several things are evident. Three things in particular that you want to take note of. The first is this. All the options are known before the choice is made. All the options are known before the choice is made. It wasn't like, you know, God said afterwards, oh, wait, you know, there's some more people that I found out about. All the options are known before the choice is made. And, and, and you know, the New Testament has the same idea that uh, the idea of careful selection from all options where the subject can freely make a choice. Well, think about it. In the Old Testament, not, there was nothing about Israel. It wasn't their righteousness. They were, they were so sinful and so going against God. It wasn't the size of the nation. What was it? It was because of God's love for them. He chose to love them. He, his choice of his people, Israel, is linked to his love for them. So all the options were known before the choice was made. You know, we get upset when, when something goes on sale after we buy it. All these Tesla owners are really upset right now because they're like, I just bought this and I could save all this money. You tricked me, you know. God didn't get, God didn't get surprised by anything. He, he chose of his own accord with all the options known before the choice was made. The second thing you'll notice in the Old Testament is that never was the one not chosen disliked. It wasn't due to any dislike uh, towards any other option. I mean, when we're choosing teams, sometimes don't think back to childhood. Uh, you, you, could, you choose someone sometimes because they're your, your friend. You know, I was always like, I want to be on that person's team because they're the best player. Um, but sometimes we choose willy-nilly as, as humans. But never in God's choosing was the one not chosen disliked. You'll never see anything like that in Scripture. David, he was chosen over his brothers. They weren't despised. There was no rejection with, with disdain there. When God chose Levi for the priesthood, it didn't mean he disliked the other tribes. There's no mention of the reprobates or the rejected. It speaks of those who are chosen, nothing of those not chosen. 
until you come to Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But what you need to understand is that is not harsh. You need to understand the Hebrew idiom that is being spoken. It's a Hebrew figure of speech. It, it literally means, I have chosen Jacob and not Esau. There's no animosity. Jesus, he said, if you love father or mother or children more than me, you're not worthy of me. But he's emphasizing that you need to love me above all. So what you notice is that all the options are known before the choice is made, and there's never any dislike referred to on those who aren't chosen. And third, and this is very important, the choice is made because of the chooser's preference, not because they were legally bound or somehow obligated to the one being chosen. Like, oh yeah, I, I promised you I would do this, or you know, you're really good, and you know, you've had some good behavior, or I know you're gonna have good behavior, so therefore I'm gonna choose you. I mean, it's very clear, human beings fall short of God's glory. Human beings come short of the glory of God and do not seek him, Romans 3 tells us that. God did not choose any because they were holy. There was no inner thing about you or outward reason about you that would cause God to choose you. God did not choose people based on any merit in them. So when you see the Old Testament word being used about God choosing, it's according to his preference with no dislike towards anyone and not obligated in any way to make the choice he makes. In all cases, and this is really crucial, in all cases, personal interest is indicated. It's not impersonal. He is personally concerned about the one he chose. Now you get to the New Testament. The New Testament language mirrors, and the meaning mirrors the Old Testament. The choice was not made in a vacuum. God's choice of a believer is in light of all known options, no reference to those not chosen, no indication of dislike towards other humans or because they had some legal claim that obligated God to choose them. It's, it's like this, and, and this is where we have to really think. God did not choose us because of our faith in Christ. He didn't choose us because he knew we would have faith in Christ. Why? That would destroy God's freedom of choice. We're concerned about free will. We have free will. The question is always, what is the will free to choose at any given moment? But that would destroy God's freedom of choice if he chose us because he knew we were going to have faith in Christ. It would mean that believers by their faith would obligate God to choose them. And it is not that God, by means of being all-knowing, because of his all-knowing, omniscient foresight, knew they would have who would have faith in him because that would give him a reason to choose you. That would obligate him. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, verse 5, if you look at verse 5, and we'll look at verse 5 next week on predestination, but look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is because this is what he wanted to do. This was not about your will. This was about his will. God's selection was done on the basis of the good pleasure of his will. No one else's will. And God chooses with intense personal interest towards the object of his choice. He's not impersonal. 
This is why you'll hear words in the Old Testament like, I have chosen you, I, I love you, I know you, you're mine. He knew how he would bring himself most glory. And so God's grace is shown in it, in him taking initiative. He took the initiative. God's free choice of people who had no claim on God. It's the clearest indicator of the lavish nature of the grace of God, how free it is. This is why in verse 5, in verse 9, in verse 11, in this chapter, we keep reading, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. All to praise God. We have nothing to boast in. The heart of election is grace. Think about it. If there was no plan of election, no one could come into the presence of God. God carefully, lovingly selected individuals, and, and everyone was not chosen. If all were chosen, no one was chosen. If all are elect, then none are. He chose from every tribe and nation and people and tongue, but he didn't choose every tribe and nation and people and tongue. We all know this. We know that all people were engulfed in sin and death. Yet God graciously determined to save some. We know all people are sinners. All people deserve hell. God freely chose some. And this is evidence of his glorious grace. It should cause us to rejoice that if God had not taken initiative, no one would be saved. The question is, why didn't he choose some? The question is, why did he choose any? He chose us from among the whole human race. The group is united as a new family, the church, the body of Christ. God chose believers to be recipients of the blessings of Christ's work of redemption. God cannot bring sinful humans into his presence without Christ paying for sin. It's all by grace. A.W. Pink said this, to be of grace, we mean that the recipient has no claim upon it, that it was in no way due to him, that it comes to him as pure charity and at first unasked and undesired. Salvation is all of grace. We do not earn it. We do not deserve it. God didn't owe us. It is purely the unmerited loving kindness of God. He, he decided to do it. He, you didn't ask for or, or desire Jesus until he turned your heart to believe. And then, then, every ounce of your being wanted what, what only he gives. Made you alive and moved your will to want him. God determined our election in Christ. And it's interesting that then we find out when it happened. Second question, when did it happen? Look at the text, you know, you know when it happened. Before the foundation of the world, the timing of election, before time began, be, before we were in the picture, nothing about our decision, before the world began, before the foundation of the world, it was a common way of talking in the Old Testament and in early Christianity for God's creation of the world. The timing was before creation in eternity past, from all eternity, from the beginning of time, and we could do nothing to cause it. It is an absolutely free gift that we should rejoice in. In Romans 9, we, we read of God being able to uh, do whatever he wants, 
as we know. When he chose Jacob and Esau before they were born, they had done nothing to merit God's favor. And God chose us before creation, which implies the preexistence of Christ. God determined to do it before the world began. And then he works it out in time and place. He's not still choosing. He's not still electing. He did it, remember, before time began. He is not still planning. He is only carrying it out now. Election, you could put it this way, is the decision. Salvation carries it out. The idea of God choosing a people for himself before time began in eternity past is taught in the Bible. The psalmist in Psalm 74 prays that God would remember his people that he purchased long ago. In the New Testament, John uses the same expression to speak of the love of the Father for the Son prior to his creation of the universe. Peter uses it to describe God's foreknowledge of how he would save the world through his Son. In Revelation 13, we read, of those whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, before time began. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's the first way God has blessed those in Christ. And newsflash, newsflash, an extraordinary truth about ultimate reality for believers is this. Contrary Contrary to popular belief back then and now, Their fate was not wrapped up in the sun and the stars and the planets, but in the true God who made the sun, stars, and planets. And your fate is not wrapped up in your horoscope or wishful thinking or astrology or magic or the stars aligning or politicians getting elected or popularity. You can't plan it out. It's not up to you. You aren't in control. You can't figure it out. Welcome to the club. But what a comfort it must have been for those new believers who were still worried about the threat of evil powers in their daily lives and they heard what God did, an absolutely free act of love, a choosing 100% grounded in himself. Nothing except him moved his will. No one told him what to do. He didn't see or anticipate your choice. There was no input from elsewhere. He decided to do something, and that's the reason you can persevere in the faith. You don't keep yourself going. You didn't save yourself. You don't keep yourself going. You won't get yourself to heaven. The reason we persevere is because it wasn't of us. God chose beforehand to do something that you had no say in. And some of us have such a hard time with this. I was an election denier at one point. I was like, there's no way God could have done that. He didn't ask our permission. There's so many things in life that he didn't ask your permission. He didn't ask you if you want to be uh, born male or female, which is why you shouldn't be messing with that. He didn't ask you what kind of skin color you wanted. He didn't ask you what family you wanted to be in. I feel like the sooner we all get that and the fact that God completely determined our salvation, the more God-centered we'll become. God determined to save us before creation. And the purpose is right here in the text. Literally in one verse, we have the entire plan of redemption compressed in one verse. Like everything in one verse. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and here's the purpose, the purpose of election was to make us fully his, to bring us fully home one day. It says that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, before him on that day, presented to him on the last day. It's what Jude says, that we would stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, fully perfected in love, all because of God's work. The reason God chose believers is that they would be holy and blameless before him. This is the language of election. God's purpose for his people, it was always that they would be like him. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 13.45, I'm holy, so you shall be holy. You shall be holy because I am holy. Same thing in 1 Peter. God's purpose for his people is always that he would make them like him. You think of the Lord's choice of Israel. Out of all the peoples on earth, it meant that he was going to make them holy. They weren't holy. He was going to make them holy. They would be separated in their behavior from the people who surrounded them in the land, and they would be careful not to fall to the influence of idolatrous customs of indigenous peoples that, that in the Old and New Testaments, the believer is called to be holy because God is. He said, I'm going to make you this way. God didn't choose anyone because they were holy. He chose in order to make them holy. And it's a process based on the work of Christ at the cross. The believers bestowed with holiness positionally. That's why we're called holy ones, saints, sanctified. But then you live it out and you, you grow into it and he grows you up into it. You know, what, he, what does he do? He follows holy up with unblemished. Let's double down on it. <laughs> you know, in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in, in, in Ezekiel, that's spoken of the unblemished sacrifice that the worshiper would bring in sacrifice to God. Here it's used metaphorically to be morally blameless, to be perfect. You think of the priests of Aaron's line, they had to be uh, with no physical defects to serve. But God chose the believer to be holy and without blame before him on the day that he reconciles all things to himself. Selected to be his possession, to reflect his character, which is why, and it begins now, but it will be completed then. That's why when you see Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's why. There's no other reason but God's electing choice. It's what he's working in us now. Philippians 2.15 tells us that. We're to be blameless in a crooked and perverted generation. And it's a process in this earthly life where there's many stumbles and falls, but you go, you go in the direction of Christ. But one day, what it's telling us is that one day in the future, our hope, the believer will stand perfect in the presence of God. Someday. You think of all the things that you're struggling with right now, and if you're a believer, one day you will stand perfect in the presence of God. Amen. He will present us. This is what Ephesians 5.27 says. Christ will present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. Think about it. Christ was presented as an unblemished sacrifice to God to pay for our sins. One day, Christ will present us, the believers, before God without blemish. And there, there is a connection between what he is doing now and what he will complete. This is why 2 Peter 1.10 
speaking of godliness, says, strive to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these things, these godly ways of living, you will never stumble. And you will receive a lavish reception into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is preparing us to go into his presence. And you'll notice the words in love. In some Bibles, it's in verse four. In some Bibles, it's in the sentence that then continues in verse five, but I think it makes most sense. A lot of people have studied this, but it makes most sense to have it in part of this thought that he's gonna present us holy and blameless in love, in our love for him and others. He's preparing us to go into his presence and uh, love, an attribute of God, uh, this is agape love, a love that seeks to, to give, a given without merit. This is, this is love that's given without merit, not a love of the worthy, not a love that seeks to desire to possess, but a love that chooses to love irrespective of whether the object of the love is worthy or deserves it. It's love that seeks the highest good of the one loved. It's the will of God. It's, it's focusing on, on what God has done and then saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to now love. And you think about it. When you, when you focus on what God has done in Christ in loving us, it will change the way you live. You'll be able to love God. I love God because he first loved me and I'm going to love others now. In love. We'll stand before him one day perfected in love that God extends his love to the undeserving and he continues to love us and, and we continue to seek his will and, and we want to bless those around us now to help others succeed and bear with one another in love all because God first loved us. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane only lived 30 years, 1813 to 1843 and he preached a sermon once on John 15, 16. He called it electing love. That verse just says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you to go bear fruit, fruit that remains. But you did not choose me, I chose you. And he said in that sermon, salvation is like a golden chain let down from heaven to earth. The two links are the hands of God, election and final salvation. What you have in verse four here is election and final salvation. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him on love on that day. And so McShane said, my brethren, how this takes away the feet from all objections raised against this holy doctrine of election. That some will say, if I'm elected, I will be saved, so I'm gonna live no matter what God says, I'm gonna live as I like, I'm gonna live as I please. He says, no, if you live an unholy life, you will not be saved. And some will say, if I'm not elected, I will not be saved, so I will live as I please. And he says, whether you're elected or not, I know not, but this I know. If you believe on Christ, you will be saved. You know, we give the gospel with no idea who the elect are until they are identified by faith in Christ and becoming like Christ. You give the gospel to image bearers and you have no idea if God has chosen them. OGK, only God knows. The gospel is no secret. The identification of the elect is. Only God knows, and he uses those alive in Christ, the elect, the identified elect, to reach the OGK elect, the only God knows elect, the unidentified as yet.
I don't know about you, but I want to appreciate this, this truth of God's wonderful works in Christ. And how can we do it? Uh, uh, some thoughts that have been rattling around in my heart this week. Uh, four brief ideas I want to give you. And the first is this. If you, if you love this, it should humble you to silence at God's greatness. It should humble you to silence at God's greatness. That before God, every act of creation finds occasion for silence before its creator, waiting on him for life and breath and everything. And saying that you don't believe in election and predestination is like denying gravity. Denial doesn't make it any less true. Again, I was an election denier. No way God did that until he crushed my pride. We're too quick to speak. This should humble us to silence the greatness of God. We're too quick to speak. In, in James 1, we read that verse that says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And we always apply it to our relationships, which is a good thing to do. But it is first and foremost not about our relationship with other people. It's about our relationship with God. James was written to a group of brand new believers that were finding it hard going and, and really uh, tough persecution coming towards them. And in the tight context about receiving the word implanted that is able to save your souls, in the context of being doers of the word, not just hearers, God says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. In context, what that means is, be quick to hear God's word. Be slow to complain to him about what he does. Be slow to anger at God for the way he works. Like, be quick to receive the word of God. Be slow to speak a word of resistance and praise God for what he does. Don't blame him. Praise God for his wonderful works. We're told to believe and be saved, and we're told God chose us. Mind-blowing. But you can't have too big of a view of God. You just can't. You can't have too big of a view of God and his greatness. So it should humble us to silence at God's greatness. And secondly, it should assure you when you doubt. It should assure you when you doubt being chosen of God, being elect of God, is one of those beautiful truths that assures you of God's love. Lesser views breed doubt. Think, Jesus chooses every Christian, drew them to himself in perfect time, assured of their eternal salvation, unites them to Christ, and you and I, on an ongoing basis, need to be encouraged once again Afresh by the word of God that tells us it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Think about the smallest blessing in your life or even the smallest bit of obedience that you can muster up. You might be frustrated. You might be downcast at all that is going on in your life. But that, that little blessing, that little obedience is proof that Christ in you is your hope of glory. You and I need fresh reminders of God's grace and the hope of glory. Christ in you put in weak fail, fickle, feeble, faulty vessels to show the surpassing value of the gospel is not of us, but of God. It should assure you when you doubt. Thirdly, it should drive you to your knees in prayer. For, the, for the, your life would be in line with it, for the lost to believe it. A, a true grasp of election fosters a humble, grateful heart. Paul was grateful to the end of his days. He made much of God's mercy. 
Those who deny election deny that God can have mercy on whomever he wills. This is the truth that God in gorgeous, glorious grace has dealt with greatest evil and that he covered our sins by the blood of Christ and that his greatness ought to cause us to fall on our faces in worship and praise and prayer to him. And lastly, number four, it should compel you to witness. Every believer should want to tell everyone about Jesus. I think of George Whitfield. He lived from 1714 to 1770. He was known as the most pro- prolific evangelist since the time of the apostles. He lit fires of revival on two continents. He loved the doctrines of God's sovereign grace. Spurgeon said of him, he was all life and fire and wind and force, and he was my model. And the foundation of his passionate preaching was unwavering belief in God's sovereignty and salvation. It ignited his soul with a holy compulsion to reach the world with the, with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some will argue that sovereign grace and evangelistic zeal cannot coexist. Nothing could be further from the truth. They meet perfectly in Scripture, and they existed side by side in the ministry of someone like George Whitfield and so many others, and hopefully in your life. No preaching will be stronger than the, than the, the doctrine on which it is based. Whitfield's theology was said to have been the motive that moved him to preach the gospel. It gave him fire to cry out and warn people of the wrath to come that they would flee from it to the loving arms of a wonderful Savior. Whitfield said this, he said, put unbelievers in mind of the freeness of an eternity of God's electing love. Insist that they lay hold of the perfect righteousness of Christ by faith. Talk to them till midnight of the riches of his all-sufficient grace. Tell them what he has done for their souls and how earnestly he is interceding for them in heaven. Press them to believe immediately. Intersperse prayers with your exhortations and call down fire from heaven, even the fire of the Holy Ghost, and speak every time as if it were your last. Compel them to cry, behold how he loves us. John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, I keep two books on my nightstand with my Bible and my family worship Bible guide, and it's The Glory of Christ and then Samuel Rutherford's The Loveliness of Christ. John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, has an exhortation to unbelievers at the end of the book. And he said this, he said, consider your present relationship to God and to eternity. Beware of being deceived. Consider what it means to live and die without Christ. Consider the love of Christ inviting you to come to him for life, deliverance, mercy, grace, peace, and eternal salvation. Christ is ready to receive the worst sinners who come to him for salvation. He is able to save as well as being willing to save. Consider the horrible ingratitude there is 
in neglecting or refusing to come to Christ, realizing the eternal ruin that will follow. You know, today, you need to consider two questions that come right out of this verse today. Two questions. Do you believe in Christ? And are you becoming more like Christ? Do you believe in Christ? Take the advice of the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but exhort one another daily while it's still called today so that no one be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Believe what Paul said, now is the day of salvation. Now at this moment, this very moment, grace is offered to you. Do not put this decision off to another time. Do you believe in Christ? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But secondly, are you becoming more like Christ? Then you are of the elect and will be saved. If you have not believed in Christ or do not live a holy life, don't fool yourself. You are saved by believing. Salvation shows in your living. Or you may not be among those that are chosen. We know the truth. Mankind is totally depraved, unable to save himself. There's been an unconditional election. The good shepherd knows his sheep, given to him from all eternity. And he made atonement at the cross for their sins. The gospel call is effective and God preserves every believer by grace. I am praying that the Holy Spirit give us a passion for God and his sovereign grace to preach the gospel. Every believer was chosen by God. God chose us in Christ with no other input from all eternity so that we would stand before him one day, holy and without blame. Before creation, because of the sovereign good pleasure of God, he chooses some people to be saved. It's the first link in the golden chain of redemption. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're transfixed. You're going to want to celebrate it and tell everyone. And I would say to you today, if you doubt it, you need to believe it. If you resist or reject or deny it, you need to receive it. But if you discovered it today like a lost jewel or treasure or $112 in, in a pocket, celebrate it for the rest of your life. This wonderful work of our wonderful God because of his glorious grace. And Lord, we praise you, we thank you, we love you. We can only love you because you first loved us. We can only believe because you first chose us. Lord, help us to truly believe what your word says. I pray, Lord, that we would, would, would come to you again and again, declaring our dependence. Lord, that, that we would not come trying to live our life on a daily basis, declaring our self-sufficiency, but that we would lay everything before your feet. And then with every ounce of of energy you give us, we would live to the praise of your glory. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Would you stand if you're able, and we're going to close singing one last song together. to leave, I want to give a couple announcements. Um, one is upcoming missions trips. Be praying for the McFarlands as they finish up their service in Mexico today. Also pray for Don Livesey and Glenn Perry as they're 
gathering a team to uh, serve February 17th and 19th. They've got people joining them, but there's more room. Pray for me as I lead a team to Zambia and Malawi in February. And uh, we have midweek service this, this Wednesday. It's going to be on why election is such a big deal. We're going to dive deeper into it and look and answer some opposing views and also do a Q&A. And uh, then I've got some really exciting news for you. Uh, we are bringing Andrew McNeil back on staff with us while he's working on his PhD in a part-time assistant pastor role. And we're very excited about that. So uh, welcome him back on staff. And let's close with uh, Jude and the last two verses, 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign.